Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together, move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harrison Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, this is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes... We all need a big sister to call on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the Big Sister Hotline. Now, I'm good at a lot of things, winged eyeliner, lip syncs, enraging men on the internet. But one of the things I've never been able to wrap my head around is my finances. I've been working in some form of paid employment since I was 13 years old. But for over two decades, I had all my superannuation sitting across multiple accounts. In my 20s, I thought caring about your super was naff and boring. So I was content to completely ignore it. And in my 30s, I started to think, hmm, super. Finally, after I had a child and became a single parent, I started to think, maybe I should plan for the future. I did what I always did when I wanted a recommendation for something, and I took to social media to ask other women for their advice. Overwhelmingly, the recommendation I received for a fund that would understand my needs as a woman and would also invest their funds ethically was Verve Super. It was a reasonably new fund at that point, but I was impressed with what I found on their website, where it states, Verve is Australia's first super fund dedicating 100% of its resources and passion to building the wealth and financial power of women everywhere. I also trusted many of the women who referred them to me, so I signed up, and I've been a member now since July 2019. And just to clarify for anyone who may be wondering, I had no communication with Verve prior to joining their fund and I don't represent or endorse organisations who I don't use myself. To be honest, I still don't really understand super and finances, but I do really want to learn because I understand that economic independence and autonomy is one of the key indicators of gender equality and women's health. So I decided to collaborate with Verve Super for this very special episode of The Hotline so I can seek some big sisterly advice on finances and learn a little bit more about why it's so important. 
Why do we need to care about our superannuation? And why should we have a fund that prioritises us particularly? Should I be concerned about insurance and what kinds? And how much should I be contributing, especially as a freelancer? Is there a way to invest ethically and create social change as a result? I've invited listeners to submit their own concerns and queries, and here to help answer them in a general sense is Christina Hobbs, the CEO and co-founder of Verve Super. Christina is an experienced board director in the superannuation industry and a former Deloitte management consultant. She's worked as a humanitarian and financial inclusion expert for the United Nations for over a decade and is a former board director of the Global Women's Project and a published author on gender equality. Christine is here to provide general guidance on how to think about making financial decisions. Just a reminder that any advice provided today is general in nature and not tailored to anyone's personal circumstances. Christina recommends that you talk to a professional financial advisor for personal advice. And so for that reason, I've combined some of the specific personal questions that were submitted into more broader themes. Christina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. And I have to say that I do remember when your name came through as a member and we were incredibly excited that you joined us. So I don't think I've had a chance to tell you that, but thanks for having me on the show. And also thank you for joining Verve. Well, thanks very much. I'm glad that you're excited. You will probably be disappointed because I barely make any contributions to my account, which is one thing I would like to know about. Uh, But we will get onto that later, uh, specifically about freelancers. Um, But I just wanted to say that, you know, as you know, Christina, and as everyone probably knows, I hate men and want nothing to do with any company that has ever even met a man or even acknowledges the existence of men. So can you give me an indication of the gender breakdown of Verve's employment force and its board? Because in fact, that was a question that was asked on my Instagram by someone who wrote, I've heard that whilst started by women, the majority of the board are men, and investments aren't necessarily the best choices ethically or for women. How wrong or right is that, Christina? Well, firstly, I really, um, I'm sure you find it incredibly challenging to do any form of banking or financial management because in Australia, 93% of financial services companies, so super funds and banks, are led by men. And so is the majority of senior management, which was one of the reasons why we decided to start Verve because women often feel excluded from these services. And so Verve was founded by three women. Our board is um, currently 100% women and currently all of our employees are women, which isn't to say that we wouldn't in the future look to bring some more men on, but we do have competitive recruitment processes and fair and transparent ones at Verve. And so far women have, um, have won all of those positions. Well, it is about merit after all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I think probably where this um, comment is coming from is we did when we launched had um, a few guys jump on Reddit and decide to start trying to tear down our funds through whatever false information they could share. And unfortunately, due to the nature of the internet, that that information still is out there um, causing rumours through to today. Um, I don't know. I'm going to stop you there because it doesn't sound to me like something guys would do on the internet to spread rumours and falsehood about women-only businesses. I think you might be making that up. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, we have had a bit of it. Um, but I have taken it a little bit as a compliment because um, one of the things I thought through was, look, we must have done a pretty good job if if these misogynistic men thought that only men could have started or been involved in such a great fund. So I've chosen to see the optimism in that. 
and um, hopefully all of our good reviews will start to push down some of these negative messages. Indeed. Um, now, I just wanted to also say that, of course, because we are all socially isolating at the moment, uh, Christina and I are recording this podcast remotely from each other, so you may hear some technical blips and glitches, unfortunately, Zoom, while excellent for this kind of thing is not a perfect system so please do bear with us and I will try and remove most of them in the edit but you may just have to kind of um, grin and bear it. (laughs) So Christina I'm just going to ask you some general questions and again just a reminder to anyone listening that the advice provided in today's podcast is general in nature and if you do have personal uh, inquiries then Christina recommends that you seek the services of a financial planner. Christina, what is the general financial outlook for women versus men in Australia? Yeah, I think that's a good question and there's a couple of ways of looking at it. And I think the first way is looking at the statistics that we hear all the time. So we know that there's still a significant pay gap. We know that there's inequalities in terms of who takes on the bulk of the unpaid care work. In terms of superannuation, we really see the end and the accumulation of all of this inequality over a lifetime and by the time women are reaching retirement they're currently retiring with around 47 percent less super than men and even women that it will be retiring in the next five to ten years are still retiring looking to retire with around 37 percent less super than men so there's a significant gap and this of course is one of the key reasons why single women over the age of 55 are the largest growing Um, cohort of homeless um, Australians. So this is a really significant issue still at play. And then, of course, the other way of looking at it is beyond the numbers and looking at what the impacts are and, you know, the stress of financial insecurity, the the women who are unable to achieve their dreams and goals because they don't have that, the base of that, their, their finances in a similar situation to men. So there's still significant amounts of inequality and particularly when it comes to super, this isn't just a legacy issue. We know that women from our first graduate job are already earning less super than their male peers. Mm. It's a very frustrating conversation to have with people and I say that from personal experience and I'm sure you have the same, uh, you encounter the same issues, that you can cite all of the facts that you like at uh, people who insist that gender equality is a reality and that anything, you know, any initiative to try and um, bridge that gap between men's and uh, male and female finances is somehow unfair and unreasonable and that women should just work harder and it's all of our own fault, etc., etc. It seems that all too many people still believe that if women are retiring with less super, that it somehow must be women's fault and not, say, the fault of structural discrimination or the fact that women are less likely to be paid super at the same extent of, of men or that women who have children are almost certainly going to take some form of time out of the paid workforce uh, in order to at least uh, at least care for those children in the first few years of their life. Are there some things that couples, particularly heterosexual couples in Australia, can be doing in terms of co-contributions to try and minimise that discrepancy and minimise that inequality? And what are the conversations we should be having with each other? Certainly, and I think that retirement equality is something that we don't talk a lot about. So I think we're accustomed to the concept of pay equality. And I think most Australians, to some extent, agree that men and women should be paid equal for equal time types of work. But the amount of time someone says to me something along the lines of, well, of course, women retire with less because they're taking time out of the workforce to look after children. So of course, that's the situation. Mm. And I always find that sort of response quite interesting, because 
um, you know, ultimately women don't end up retiring with less some men because they take more time out of the workforce to care it's because they're doing that plus we have no retirement benefit um, for when women are taking time out to care and so it's really a combination of these factors and I think really opening eyes to see what's happening in in other in other countries so there's European countries and Scandinavian countries for instance that do pay a retirement benefit when people have taken time out of the workforce to care and not just when they're on paid parental leave, but when they're on any form of carer's leave. So there's always different ways of um, structuring things at a political level that could help to solve this gap. But even at, at a broad national political level, there's no target around retirement equality. And we haven't really as a nation ever come to a sort of joint conclusion that it's actually even something that we're striving for. And I think amongst really significant parts of the population, there's still the assumption of why do we even need this? Because women will have a man to to rely on, a well-paid man to rely on um, in their older age. And so why do we need that equality? And of, of course, that's problematic for so many reasons. The first being that even women in heterosexual couples tend to not want to rely on their partner for their income later in life, let alone women in same-sex relationships or women who end up being single. Um, but I... I think this issue of how to make a super fair within a relationship is a very interesting one too. And co-contributions is a great one. So if one partner is earning more than another, they can make contributions into their partner's superannuation. Um, similarly, if one partner has taken time out of the workforce to care, that might be another period in which one partner may be interested in, in making contributions. And I think the really important thing within a relationship is to sit down and have those discussions around financial equality, not just thinking about the next one year, two years, three years, but thinking about how will we manage our finances so that we both have access to income and that this is managed fairly and equally through to, um, you know, our final years of life. And contribution splitting is, a, is one, potential, one potential really great option there. It's really frightening actually when you think about, I mean, you mentioned before the... Uh horrible reality that the fastest growing group of homeless people in this country are women over the age of 65 and it's frightening and enraging to think of you know an entire generation of women who either took time out of the workforce to have children or were expected and in some cases forced to leave the workforce after they got married and had children and were then punished for it later on when either their husbands might have passed away or <laughs> in more likely scenarios their husbands left them for someone else um, or they've wound up single somehow and uh, really poverty-stricken. It seems to me that you've kind of cottoned onto something really important there, which is that people like to pay lip service to the notion of gender equality in this country and say, well, you know, I believe that people should be paid the same amount of money for the same kind of work. But there's always a reason why a lot of people – or a justification that a lot of people are able to give for why that workload is not the same or, well, we pay women less because women take time out to have babies because, of course, the work of child-rearing and the labour of, of you know, growing a human and giving birth to a human and then raising it in the first few years of their life – uh, almost solely, of course, that's not valued as any kind of work that would, uh, you know, possibly deserve remuneration or be recognised by society as being fundamental to the economy. Um, and I wonder if, if we actually did take that approach of thinking 
in, instead of thinking just about, well, how do we make the workforce equal for women, how do we actually look at retirement and make retirement and money reflective of the value that women provide to society, then maybe we might be able to, you know, create some kind of shift in people's thinking. Um, although I don't know, I've been fighting for gender equality for a long time and people are still very resistant to it. Um, totally, but I, I think even at some you know, it's a conversation we can remind ourselves of, even with the women we know in our lives. Because I think the amount of times that I talk to a woman who feels really embarrassed and ashamed about her financial situation because she's in her 50s or 60s and, and hasn't got sufficient amount to retire, and even just reminding that person about what they've done, why they're in this situation, because they've taken years out of paid workforce to care. You know, they, they tried to re-enter work but struggled for many years. And you know, I think really trying to take away some of that guilt and shame from from people who are in that situation is, is you know, just one small thing that we can all do, um, I think, to support more women. Mm. And one of the things that Verve does that uh, is really, you know, practically empowering for women and for your clients as well is that you offer free financial education and guidance. Can you explain a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah, this is a really important part of what we do. So one of our founders, Zoe Lamont, she'd actually run a not-for-profit organisation for 10 years um, where she'd coached 10,000 women and just seen the profound impact of women coming together and supporting each other. And one of the real reasons behind why we do this is because the studies sort of show that men are more likely to talk about money with their peers and like to get that their financial information from what they read and then through discussions with their peers, whereas women are less likely at the moment to discuss with their peers and would actually rather get advice from a professional or have professional assistance. But surprise, we find the entire financial services industry is the most unethical and least trustworthy, and so we often don't know where to start in actually going and speaking to someone. And so really what we try to focus on is what we call coaching, which is not telling people what to do but in helping people understand how the financial system works how um, options for building wealth so that they can make sound financial decisions and sadly it's something that we're not we're not taught at school so if it's not something we're taught as children or in our families and if we're not discussing it with our peers it's probably something we're never going to feel particularly comfortable about unless we can start having those conversations. Mm. Can you talk more specifically about uh the impact that COVID-19 in particular has had on superannuation and women's finances in Australia? Mm, so we know that women have been, we know that women are make up the bulk of some of the industries that have been hardest hit and also make up the bulk of the casual and part-time workforce in Australia. And so although I haven't personally seen gender disaggregated data coming out, yet I imagine that women have been particularly hard hit so particularly women in retail jobs Mm. Um, and so and then on top of that we also know that women in general have less savings because of the pay gap because we are taking this time out of the workforce for unpaid care so we have a situation where women are less able to manage the shock because of not having the same financial safety buffers plus being more likely to be impacted through um, the nature of um, the way that we are in the labour market. And so um, I think this is a really challenging time for women and particularly when it comes to superannuation because we have, of course, seen that the government is allowing people to, some people to access their superannuation. Mm. And, of course, this is a really, really difficult decision for a lot of women to make, um, women who may urgently need access to cash now but know that they're taking 
money that they ultimately um, would like to keep invested for their futures. So there's certainly some real problems with the policies that have come out at the moment. It's a real catch-22 and, you know, unfortunately it, it does seem like you can warn all you like and you can talk about the practicality of, of what superannuation looks like 25 years down the track. But if, you're, if you've suddenly lost your job, and as you said, if you are a woman who, you know, the, the part-time casualised workforce is predominantly filled by women, and women, of course, are also the ones who are being charged now with having to perform the majority of the, you know, unpaid domestic labour in the home and balance their work if they still have it with, you know, homeschooling the kids or taking care of the house, etc., all work as well, which we've already established, is not financially rewarded in any way, then it doesn't really matter how much you can sort of say, well, I need to be practical about my future. If you need that money right now, then it seems like it's going to be much more likely that women are the ones who are taking the hit than men, which again comes back to the problems that we have in terms of, of, you know, the gender division of labour in this country. Totally. And it's a very fine line between trying to educate or, you know, um, make people aware of the impacts of taking out some of their super now in, for the longer term versus sort of almost shaming women again about needing to access this money. And I know that just seeing the comments that we've had come through on our social media, a lot of women have felt that some of these messages about not accessing super um, you know, or only taking out small amounts have almost made them feel more of that guilt and shame about their financial situations. And so it is really, it is really challenging and problematic. going to move on now to some questions and queries that have been submitted by uh, listeners to the podcast and also followers from Facebook. And again, just a reminder that some of these questions are going to be kept very general because Christina cannot give personal financial advice. So instead, I uh, would urge you all to take this information and use it to further explore the financial options available to you. And that may include hiring a financial planner. So Christina, I've had a few questions about understanding how much women need for a comfortable retirement um, and also whether or not salary sacrificing can fit into that. So can you explain a little bit more about uh, what that outlook looks like and about salary sacrificing in particular? Mm, So we often hear this million dollar figure and so often I'm talking to people about, well, what do you think for retirement? It's a million dollars and I have nothing near a million dollars. Uh, so the first thing I think I would say is getting getting that idea out of your head if that's what's in your head. So some of us, depending on the lifestyles we want, will need a lot more than that. Some of us, depending on the lifestyles that we are currently living and where we find our own personal enjoyment, will, will require less than that. And so a really good way that I like to think of it is um, just working out what you might need in a year. So thinking about the kind of expenses you might have, the kind of holidays you might want to go on, whether you'll own a house by that point or still be renting. So coming up with what you think your expenses are. And typically people in retirement spend a little bit less than those who are, who are still in the workforce. And once you've got a rough estimate of what you think you need for one year, then you can actually hop on the Australian Government Money Smart website and just have a search for something called the retirement calculator. And you can actually put in your current superannuation savings and a few other figures, and it'll actually show you how you're tracking. So how much you're likely to have per year in retirement. And that's just a great way 
to get a general sense because I also speak to people who have a lot of fear and anxiety and are actually tracking okay. So really understanding your position is the first part of being able to develop a plan. And of course, if you do this exercise and realize that you are going to need more to retire, then starting to think about ways that you can um, increase your savings or increase your investing for later in life. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be through your super. So if you're building a business or if you have other forms of um, investments, you know, you can look at how you can use these assets as well. But within superannuation, salary sacrificing is a tool where you make an agreement with your employer to contribute more into your super. So this is above the minimum that your that your employer is mandated to put in. And the really brilliant thing about salary sacrificing is that between the money you put in, your employer puts in, or anybody else puts in for you, like your partner, you can have up to $25,000 of contributions going in based on current legislation that is, um, that's essentially tax-free. So pre, not tax-free, but pre-income tax. So this is money that you don't have to pay through your income tax. So similarly, if your employer can't set this up for you, you can do this yourself as well by just making additional superannuation contributions through your super fund. And as long as you do it before the end of the financial year, you can claim them back then on your tax return, mm. like other forms of um tax return benefits. So it's a great way of building up your balance, but also saving on tax. Um, of course, then that money is locked away and you can't touch it until you retire. So something to consider, um, but yeah, a great option for people looking to build up their super balances. Does this mean that someone like me who is a freelancer and isn't paid via an employer and you know is responsible for all my own tax payments and my own super contributions, that I could, I could use that method as well and I could uh, donate donate I could contribute say 25% of any payment I received I could contribute it straight into my super and then that would classify technically as as tax-free yeah so as long as it, you're under that threshold um, and I would have a look on the ATO website because there's other aspects of that threshold but as long as you're under the threshold then you can um, claim it back as an income tax deduction and when I speak to freelancers, there's a couple of options or way of doing this because as you probably know, your income throughout the year can be a bit lumpy up and down. Um, and so for people in this situation, sometimes what I suggest as, as a useful thing to consider is actually to think about putting money away either every week or every month or every time you get paid into a separate bank account. And then before the end of the financial year, if you haven't needed that money, then you can put it into your super. Mm. Whereas if you if you have gone through a period where you weren't earning as much as you thought or if something happened within your business or your self-employment, um, then you have that money there to access. So there's all different ways you can do it. Some people just have an automatic transfer set up so it's going straight into their super account. So um, def- definitely options there and, and definitely potential tax benefits as well. So something to really have a look at. And Some if you are interested in that, give your superannuation fund a call and they can or give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> I will be giving you a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I want to ask a little bit more about the impact of COVID-19 in particular again. And, you know, many people, mm. as we know, have had their incomes impacted and a lot of those mm. people are women. In, in light of that, you know, what would you would... <sighs> What would your view be about making contributions to super, um, you know, when you kind of have that fear of 
uh, where your income will be coming from in, say, six months hanging over your head. Because this is one of the things that I fear as a freelancer who lives every every job that I get, I treat it as if it could be my last one. Um, so it's always I'm always the squirrel out collecting the nuts. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm afraid of storing the nuts in a tree that I can't touch for the next 25 years. Um, so I sort of sympathise with the fact that people might be feeling that same pressure now because their employment is less, is less stable. What would you say in terms of making contributions even throughout this? Mm. So I think it's looking at those contributions, I'd almost look at them like any kind of investment that you make. and. Broadly speaking, I think a good approach before you start making any form of investment, so whether it's you buy a house or whether you buy shares or whether you put more money into your super, is thinking about the rest, the foundations of your finances. So do you have what we call a safety buffer? So that's a buffer of money that let's say you don't get a contract for another three months. Would you be able to fund your basic living expenses? Similarly, do you have your insurance established um, and are you, do you have paid off all of your short-term debt? So do you not have credit card debts, um, high interest debt, car loan, high interest debt? Mm. Um, and really before we generally um, s- discuss with people considering to invest more, we make certain that those things are in place because as you said, your superannuation is, is locked away. You can't get that money back. Um, but it's the same almost as if you buy a house. Like you don't want to be in the situation of buying a house and then, two months later you lose your job and you don't have income for two months and then suddenly you may be in a position where you then again need to sell that sell that asset. So I think um, making certain that the money that you're putting away is right for you. So I discussed already the way of putting money away throughout the year so it's still in a bank account that you could potentially access. If you feel like your lumpiness is running across one or two or three years, mm-hmm. um, then again you might just want to hold that in another form of investment um, until you know that, that, okay, now I can, I can lock it away. And the good thing about um, the $25,000 cap that I talked about is there's actually some scenarios where you can carry that forward. So if you're not able to contribute one year, you can actually contribute extra the next year. So have a look on the ATO website. But I think your idea of what we don't want to do is put more financial stress onto people. So if the concept of locking um, money away into your super is going to be is going to add to your financial stress then pop it away in a bank account somewhere where you can't touch it and then transfer it into your super when you feel more comfortable about that decision mm. um, or have a think about doing that I should say because of course <laughs> this is just generally speaking yeah again just a reminder to everyone that this is general advice and if you do have personal financial questions please do seek the support and paid advice of a professional uh, just to, in regards to COVID, obviously it's on everyone's minds at the moment, particularly where finances are concerned. Um, one woman has written to me asking whether or not um, I could ask you if she can use the new rules allowing her to access her super early to pay for some house renovations. Uh, in doing so, she's scared about the impact that it might have on her life insurance. Now, I know you can't provide that specific advice, but generally speaking, I know you've advised against um, – or you've advised people to strongly consider uh, growing that super fund for retirement later on um, and having that secondary bank account. But when you're presented with the option, as the Australian government has done, to access $10,000 of your super, if you kind of feel like, well, this could be the last opportunity I have to do something like this, 
what what should be first and foremost in your mind? What are the things stopping you? And will it have an impact on your life insurance later on? I think the first thing around who is this policy meant for? And this policy was really meant for people who have lost their income in completely or, or suffered a significant drop. And the ATA has developed some tests around this that you need to be able to um, self-identify that you comply with in order to access the money. Um, and broadly speaking, it's people that are in this situation who are going to benefit the most from this money, people who need money now to manage their basic living expenses. And as I said, if you're in that situation, if money's for you, don't feel guilty about accessing it do what's right for you and make certain that you maintain your financial security now. Of course, we've seen some really um, strong warnings coming out, both by Industry Super Australia and also we've been in the media as well talking about this. And there's a couple of reasons why accessing this money now is, is quite problematic. And the first is that if you think about your superannuation like an investment, as we know, right now the markets have taken a hit. So we've seen all those dramatic headlines of bloodbath on the ASX and, and all the rest of it. Um, so the stock market's in a lower position, although it has started to recover a little bit in recent weeks. Um, but think about it a little bit like a home if you had a house and a house asset. Now, if the property market suddenly dropped significantly, it's unlikely that you would be thinking that that's a great time to go out and sell your house. Mm. But by taking this money out of your super, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're taking the money out when the market's low and it won't be there to be reinvested when the market rebounds. And if we look at the last 120 years of the Australian stock exchanges, um, what we've seen is you know, world wars, Vietnam War, we've seen the GFC, we've seen the Asian financial crisis, we've seen the Spanish flu, we've seen a whole lot of things happening that have caused the market to drop and then it always rebounded. And so following that long-term trend, we would expect the same thing. There's always risk in any form of long-term investment, but if the market does rebound and you've taken money out, it won't be in there to, to enjoy that rebound as well. Mm. And then, of course, just the way super works. Super works by sitting there over 10, 20, 30, 40 years and slowly building interest and then the next year you have a bit more money and then that accumulates interest and the next year it's a bit more and that accumulates interest. And so the industry super industry super Australia has actually estimated that, you know, a 20-year-old who takes out $20,000 today based on historical performance, that could be equal to $120,000 less in their super by the time they retire. And even for a 40-year-old, it could be $63,000 less in super. So it's definitely something that if you don't absolutely require that money to really think about whether it's necessary for you to take out the full amount or you can also opt to take out a smaller portion of it as well. Mm. Well, just, you know, on that insurance note as well, this, yeah. is a, this is something that seems to be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, who needs insurance? Yeah, this is a good question and on the because I forgot to answer that on the COVID, but um, I don't think the government fully thought this one through because they'd recently introduced some insurance changes in super, which means that if you have um, a low balance account, um, that your money can actually be rolled back into the ATO if it's inactive, so if you're not contributing super. And there's a number of different rules around insurances that might mean that if your balance actually drops significantly and it becomes a low balance, you may actually lose your insurance. So if you do take money out, it might be worth just giving your superannuation fund a call, particularly if you've got a low balance, just to ensure that you will remain insured. Um, on the issue of who needs insurance, this is a really interesting one. I like to just do this exercise very simply. So pull out a piece of paper, Think about everything in your life that has value and provides meaning and security for you. 
So you, your pets, your children, your loved ones, your house, the car that supports the rest of your lifestyle. And then in another column, pop down the worst thing financially that could happen to each of these things and how much that would cost you. And then based on that, work out what you could actually afford if a couple of these things happened at once. So if you crashed your car, plus you had to take a month off work for illness, or if you lost your job, plus you needed to fix, do an urgent repair to your gas system. So what we often find is that, you know, some people are easily able to cover the worst case scenario of a pet injury. So I've got a few thousand dollars, even if something happens to my dog, I can afford it. So therefore you may not need pet insurance. But on that other hand if something happened to you personally and you're unable to work for six months you may not have enough of a buffer to get through that period in which case something like income protection insurance may be useful for you so it's really based on the things you won't be able to afford to cover if a couple of those worst case scenarios happen at the same time that's the way I personally like to look at it and you as a super fund you also provide insurance or people can organize insurance through you and can you and can people bring their insurance over from another super fund as well? Yeah, so the insurance, I think what's important to for people to know about the insurance that's provided with a super fund is that the super fund isn't actually providing that insurance. So they've just made an agreement with an insurer so that it's easy easier for you to get to get coverage when you join that fund or if you're a member of that fund. But all of those, the insurances that you can pay through your super that are provided by your super fund, you could also go out into the market and find the best insurer for you based on your personal situation. And then under most conditions, that that insurance can also be paid through your super. And so at Verve, for instance, we don't opt anyone automatically into our insurance provider. So we don't force anyone into it when they join. People actually need to opt into it and to make a decision that they want to get that form of insurance. And the reason why we think that's really important is that some policies work really well for some people and some policies don't work well for some people. And I think a really important part of insurance is to really understand the policy and to get a policy that works for you. So I can talk about my own personal situation. So when I started Verve, the first year that I worked on the idea before the fund actually started, I didn't pay myself at all. And so I really relied on all of my savings. Now, when I went to get income protection insurance, I wouldn't have been insured. I wouldn't have been able to get insurance to cover my, the level of income I wanted because I'd essentially been unemployed for a year or had very low income for a year. And so I needed to look at, at other forms or particular insurance companies that would be willing to insure me. Um, and so the worst case scenario is something goes wrong and you're not insured, but probably even worse than that is you're not insured and you've been paying for insurance. So I really encourage people to not just go in, especially with super, um, to really look at the policy that they've been that they've opted into, um, and to make sure that that insurance is right for them. Mm. And then in terms of transferring insurances between funds, uh, you can do this. So there are options to move um, insurance from one fund to another. And what you can keep generally is you can keep the amount that you're insured for. But often what that means is that you may need to pay a different premium for that. Um, and that premium will change because once you come under new, new insurance funds policy, um, you're then covered for whatever that insurance fund wants to cover you for. Typically, those that cover you for more things under more circumstances will charge a bit more. And those that provide less coverage will charge less. 
So um, you may have to change your premium, but you should also have a look at what you're covered for and make certain that it still applies for you. Speaking of insurance and what you're covered for, uh, this isn't exactly an insurance question, but we did have quite a few people curious about how super is treated in a separation or divorce scenario because this is clearly one of the ways in which women can experience disadvantage um, the most. Are women entitled in Australia to some of their husbands' super, if especially if they sacrifice their own earning capacity to stay at home and look after children or uh, look after a house or, or whatever it might be? I mean, I think she should just take it all, but what's, what's, <laughs> what does the law say, Christina? You sound like our um, – we actually at Verb have a divorce and separation coach for our members, so I think she would have liked your attitude. <laughs> um, no, she's very fair, but, um, you know, speaking to her, what I've really learned is that a lot of women do settle for less than they're entitled for for a number of reasons. And so, yeah, if you are thinking about separation and divorce, I strongly recommend accessing a professional coach. But when it comes to superannuation – um, the way that superannuation is looked at is is that it's included in the pool of other assets. So just like housing or, or cash, um, it is considered in terms of what are all the assets that people that that the that the, um, that the couple have in order to split. Um, now, sometimes it, it may it may be decided that. Um, each party will just keep their superannuation and that the party that had less will get more of some other form of assets. Um, Superannuation can be split, um, but it remains, I think something that's important to remember is it's not paid out in cash and and given to you. It means that it will actually still be treated as superannuation. Um, And so I think the really key message here, though, is that it it should be included in that overall pool of assets just because it's super and it's under somebody else's name, it doesn't mean that it's not included in that pool of of assets and can be divided. I want to just finish now by talking more specifically about Verve and some of the things that it it offers its clients, Um, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, any confusion people might have around it being a for-profit or a not-for-profit fund. So, Christina, Verve is a for-profit fund. Uh, Are those profits returned to members or how are they used? In what way are they invested? Yeah, so essentially when we started Verve, we looked at what would be the um, easiest way that we could um, start the fund and that would allow us to have the lowest fees for our members and provide the greatest service for our members. And that was setting up what is essentially a social enterprise. So um, we we return our profits currently. So our board has made a commitment at least for the next five years and then this will be um, reviewed by subsequent boards to reinvest those profits within our community and in building our community. And so what that looks like is that we provide free financial coaching and resources for our members through events, online webinars, Um, But we also provide that support for other organisations. So, for instance, we've partnered with the YWCA, we've partnered with the Victorian Women's Trust um, in the past to provide support to their members as well. And so it's really a cycle where we really want um, our members to be able to benefit, but then our goal is within the next couple of years to be able to support over a million Australian women um, with free financial resources and, and to build up the knowledge of Australian women that way. 
So one of the things that you could say without wanting to sound too twee is that Verve invests in women. Um, but it also, uh, you know, one of one of the selling points for Verve is that you invest profits ethically into other organisations. Um, and I, I love that you work with the YWCA. But one, you know, a lot of super funds might invest in, say, coal companies and Verve doesn't do that. Yeah, so when we looked at starting the fund, we, we actually surveyed hundreds and hundreds of Australian women and said, you know, like, okay, so we all agree that the rest of the financial services sector is, you know, a bit screwed. Um, you know, how would we do this better if we were to start from day one? And the themes were really around better service, better um, support to learn about money, but then also just a commit, a really solid commitment to ethics and transparency and, um you know, on a personal level, I wouldn't have my own money invested in industries that I don't agree with. And so we really wanted to ensure that as best we could in line with the regulation. And because as a super fund, we have to invest for the first and foremost for the returns of our members, um, but also ethically. So we don't invest in tobacco, we don't invest in gambling. Um, my background, I'd worked for the UN in a number of complex settings. So I'm really proud that we don't invest in weapons. Um, and of course, we don't invest in any new fossil fuels or any fossil fuel developments. And really sadly, we're still one of the only funds in Australia that doesn't invest in any fossil fuels, which is quite unbelievable in this in this day and age. But then on top of that, what really excites me is that we actually look at how we can invest for impact as well. So not just um, saying what we don't invest in, but this is what we do want to see grow. And we've got some amazing investments that we've made. So we've invested in a organisation in New South Wales that supports critically ill, uh, mentally ill people to stay out of hospitals. And the New South Wales government actually um, remunerates them for each person they keep out of hospitals. So we we help invest in that program. We recently formed a partnership with an international um, not-for-profit organisation that provides microfinancing and business support to women in our, in our region. And so that not-for-profit provides a business skill training um, and financial learning assistance to women in Asia and Africa. And then we, our members' money is actually used to finance their loans. And then our members' money receive the interest back that, that these, our members receive the interest back that these women are paying. And so through doing this, we're able to, for, often for the first time, provide women with loans who would otherwise never have been able to access capital or would have accessed that money for extortionate rates of interest um so we have this incredible cycle where our member super is already being used to support other women's businesses in the region and we can do that because that not-for-profit had come to us and could demonstrate that they were able to to provide very consistent returns with 90 percent of loans being repaid so when you start to think a little bit of imaginatively there's an enormous amount that you can do with super and of course women in australia hold over a trillion dollars of super so it's actually an enormous amount of power that we could use and it's power that we're not made aware of and that, you know, there's all of the old stereotypes and tropes about women being bloody useless with money and also frivolous and um, only kind of interested in superficial things, which of course is absolute nonsense. 
um, particularly when you're talking about, you know, women's capacity to, to care for their communities and the economic buying power and spending power that we have as a market force. Totally. And I think um, we'd actually did a, a review of media and I was talking about this last year a lot where we were looking at um, the studies on what um, how men, men and money are portrayed in the media versus women and money. And as you said, it's this trope of women as a frivolous spenders and the consumers, whereas the financial press, when it's talking about men and money, it's about wealth building and it's about power and it's about how can we build our assets. And I really think sort of the next frontier when it comes to women in finance is really starting to step into investments. So we've won the right to, to work and to keep our jobs um, after we get married. We've won the rights to equal pay, even if we're not paid it. And through all of these um, victories, we have you know started to accumulate some real wealth. And, you know, historically and where we're at today is that women are really shut out of the investment decisions around wealth in Australia. I already talked about the statistics around how many women are involved in the senior levels of banking and finance. And I really think the next frontier is, is women really starting to work together of how can we invest this money and build the world that we want? Because clearly just passively investing this money in coal mines and other industries that we don't agree with is, is not going to build the future that we do want. Um, and so I think these kind of conversations are really, really exciting. And a lot of this is around education as well and ensuring that women do feel powerful to make those investment decisions and do feel comfortable in that space. Can I just say as well that I love that you frame it in those terms when we won the right to do this, when we won the right to work and when we won the right for equal pay, et cetera, even if we don't actually receive it. Because all too often people frame equality and gender equality is some kind of act of benevolence so you know I'll, well we gave you the vote or women were women were given the right to equal pay when actually that's not reflective of history at all that those things have been hard won by women who fought strong and um you know to to a great deal of of detriment to themselves in their social standing and and ridicule from people and and threats of violence and so on and so forth so it always really frustrates me when I hear people place it in those terms and I and I feel reassured that you um you see it that way I'm interested to know uh I mean I imagine that Verve I mean apart from being a fund that has the interests of its female clients in mind I imagine that it must be a very positive a place for women working in finance to also, you know, sort of get up and go to work each day? Because I could be wrong here, but it seems to me likely that maybe there's a little bit of sexism in the finance industry. <laughs> yeah, I think it was really, I think it was the first week we launched and I was like, whoa, because I had, we probably had, I probably had about three times as many women contacting me on LinkedIn about potential job in, job opportunities as we did actual members at that point. And it was just phenomenal. I had, I was on the ABC one night and I think it was just dozens and dozens of people reaching out. Um, and it's also just meant that there's some wonderful women elders in that industry who are just so supportive of what we're doing and really want us to succeed because, you know, obviously having a few women voices within an industry makes it really hard to shift and change change behaviors compared to being able to build something 
from scratch. And I think one of the things I'm most proudest about, and I think what I've enjoyed the most is actually just sitting down as an organization and saying, okay, what would this look like if we built it absolutely from scratch? And, you know, one of the things that we did is that we're, we, we work very remotely already. We had, um, you know, a number of us, um, employees, are, are mothers, um, or, you know, want to, you know, have lifestyles that aren't conducive to working nine to five in an office. And, and so, you know, just, you know, being able to reimagine what a really creative and loving environment and workplace that supportive of staff has been one of the real joys for me. And, you know, I think in COVID it's really shown as well because it's an emotionally draining job being in super at the moment because, you know, we're just hearing so many people's stories of financial hardship. And I think having a team that, you know, is, is well positioned to respond to that with, you know, love and as much transparency and helpfulness as possible is something that I'm, I'm really glad we're able to offer. I know that you're, you know, we're coming to the end of this podcast episode um, and I know that you cannot offer personal advice and certainly just a reminder yet again to anyone listening that the discussion had on today's podcast has been general in nature and if you are looking for more personally tailored advice then please do seek the help of a professional. So you can't offer that personally tailored advice but what would you like all women listening to this to know about their financial capacity and also to increase confidence in? Yeah, I think the I think it's just that we we really excel in this space. And I think we're just so often told that we don't know how to manage money. We so often refer, you know, refer because we're managing all the other emotional labor within our households. We refer money often to our male partners if we have them, um, sorry, defer it off. Um, but, you know, I think if you really look at all the data, it really shows that women, when we have little money, we budget better. We are actually more likely to buy, we buy houses earlier compared to our male peers. We are actually more, more likely to contribute to super, even if we don't have as much to contribute. So we're actually really good at making strong financial decisions. And the more that we can step into that and feel confident in that space and feel more confident about talking and building wealth, I think the better. Mm. And I think part of the reason why we often don't like to talk about money and about wealth is because money doesn't motivate us quite often. We're like, we don't care. Just let me get on with all the other cool stuff I'm doing. (laughs) Um, And so I think my takeaway would be that the true meaning of wealth is to have an abundance of what you value in your life. And if you focus on what you want that abundance to be, then you've got a great driving motivating factor to go out there and learn about building wealth and to ensure that you negotiate hard to get what you're worth to ensure or that you have the wealth to live to live that life that you want. I have been talking to Christina Hobbs, the CEO and co-founder of Verve Super. Uh, Australia's first super fund dedicating 100% of its resources and passion to building the wealth and financial power of women everywhere. Thank you so much for joining me today, Christina, and answering some of these general questions um, and demystifying a little bit the the kind of confusion around superannuation and finances and women in particular. 
Thanks so much for having me. And as an absolute former Dolly Doctor fan, this has really been a highlight of my week. So thanks for having me on the show. Oh, thank you. Now, if people want to find out more about Verve, they can go to vervesuper.com.au and they can also find out about the financial classes that you offer there, correct? Yeah, pop on the website. We've also got a Facebook group called Women with Verve Talk Money and Life where you can ask your general money questions and talk with other women about money. Um, yeah, or yeah, hop on our website, send us an email, give us a phone call, hop on the Facebook group, however you like to communicate. And remember, don't let a global pandemic stop you from thinking about your retirement. <laughs> it's not stopping me thinking about super. Thanks, Christina. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.